0: What you'll yeah. do is send me an email saying that she spoke to you and then, all right, that's all right, okay. Thank you. We hey, were just thinking the other guys would be on, and we would be the only ones here,
1: and you're definitely doing something like about it. Whatever. Good. All right, all right. Chapter 6 and chapter 9. A lot of material. Okay. Uh, chapter 6, there will be uh, different segments that we'll take a look at. The first, thing, the first 15 verses, 1 to 15, had to do with the multiplication of the loads. 6, 1 to 15. That is, we're not going to get into issues about whether or not chapter six and chapter five are misplaced uh, or rearranged. And so it's more of a scholarly uh, exercise everyone can Okay. All right, basically, the multiplication of loaves is the only miracle in the public ministry of Jesus that's narrated in all four Gospels. question arises, is John's account of this incident dependent on the Synoptic accounts or does it represent an independent tradition? And there's a little complication of monkey wrench in this situation because Matthew and Mark have two accounts of the multiplication of Lewis and fish. One for 5,000 men and it's like one for 4,000. Luke has only one account, so basically you have two in Matthew, two in Mark, one in Luke, one in John. So you have six accounts, basically. And The question arises, is, is the second multiplication really a separate incident, or is it simply a variant form of the same incident? And if the latter is the case, there's simply a different form of the same incident, then Matthew and Mark would be similar to the Pentateuch, where you have several accounts of the same event recopied, often side by side, or recorded side by side. So for instance, the most typical example is what in the Old Testament? Two stories copied side by side, the same incident, event. Opening of the Bible, chapter 1 and chapter 2, are two stories of creation, side by side. So, if uh, Matthew and Mark were just reduplicating the same incident, it would be similar to what would be going on in the Pentateuch of the Old Testament. Okay, arguments... uh, Now, in the second multiplication account, there is no suggestion that the disciples were seeing something they had seen before when you have the two accounts in Matthew and, and Mark. Okay. They're puzzled about where the crab will get food. And that's hard to explain if they had already witnessed a multiplication prior to that. Now, the question would be, are you gonna do the same thing you did before whereas they have no clue as to what Jesus might possibly do in this situation. Both Matthew and, and Mark both begin with a multiplication. The succeeding incidents are very much the same in their themes. So what we might have here are two preaching complexes of material, each based on a multiplication of loaves, both of them preserved in Mark and Matthew. So they would seem to be, you know, from the evidence we say, uh, most possibly, uh, you know, two different incidents, because the fact that the, the disciples have no clue as to how Jesus might go about solving the problem, uh, would indicate that they're not aware a previous one. Now, in regard to John's story here, it seems that he drew on in an independent tradition that had the same general sequence as the traditions that Mark used in writing his gospel. Independent tradition, but a tradition that had the same kind of sequence that the uh, tradition that the Gospel of Mark used. So, for instance, uh, the, the format. multiplication location for 5,000. Mark six thirty to 44. You don't have to worry about this. John 6, 1 to 15. The next thing in both of them, in, in, John, in John and Mark, you have the walking on the sea. And the next thing is a request for a sign and remarks about the bread and the faith of Peter and then a passion theme and betrayal. So, that sequence that you find in Mark's Gospel is pretty much followed in the Gospel of John. But we don't think that John is copying or using the Gospel of Mark, it's just that he's using a tradition that, in this case, uh, as a sequence very close to that of Mark. <clears throat> now, when we take a look at the, the multiplication of loaves in John's Gospel, there's a theological orientation here, just as there's one in the Synoptic against. Now, there are certain details that are peculiar in John's account of the multiplication of loaves that you don't find in the synoptics. The first thing is the Passover setting. John explicitly introduces the Passover theme, which would prepare for the discourse that's going to follow the actual multiplication of loaves. So, in 6.4, it says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now that connection with the Passover is not mentioned in the synoptic accounts or even in Luke. So John uh, associates this multiplication of loaves and then the explanation later with Passover. The Passover motif fits not only verses 51 to 57 later in this chapter, but also the mention of manna in verse 31. Manna is certainly mentioned in the Passover neo liturgy. So John is unique here in tying together or associating this miracle, the loaves, with Passover. And also another thing too is that the liturgy also mentions the crossing of the Reed Sea. Now that may be associated with the walking on the water. Okay, you have the multiplication of loaves or the, the manna, what follows after that in the Exodus account? The crossing of the Red Sea. So you have some crossing of water. That's in chapters 6, 16 to 21. Okay, the story of uh, God into a boat and started across the Sea of Galilee 2.1. The second thing is the identification of Philip and Andrew in John's account. Chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Okay, Jesus said to Philip, how are you to buy bread so people may eat? He says, it's a testament. he knew what he would do. Philip asked him, 200 denarii wouldn't buy enough bread for each of them. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a land here. There's five barley loaves and two fish. What are they among so many? Okay, so the other gospel accounts of the multiplication of do not mention these two disciples. Now, why do they appear in John's account? Well, both of these disciples were honored in Asia Minor, which is the traditional setting for John's Gospel. The names were introduced to make the Gospel maybe more acceptable here in Asia Minor. Or maybe these disciples were originally involved in the story, And the memory of this is preserved only in the tradition that had come down to John. So either uh, they were introduced to make the gospel more acceptable in that Asia Minor area, or in fact, they were part of the story. And they were part of the tradition that John made use of. Another thing is... uh, Some details that you find. Chapter 6, verse 9. John specifies that a lad had five barley loaves and dried fish. The use of the word lad by Darion and the barley loaves recall the Elisha story in 2 Kings Chapter 4, verse 42. Barley Lowe's a man. Also, in chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, you have Eucharistic features. Now, these are all things that are in John that you don't find in the Synoptics. In all the accounts of the multiplication, there's a strong Eucharistic motif. The synoptic evangelists saw this miracle as a messianic sign fulfilling the Old Testament promises that in the days to come, God would feed his people with plenty. That's how the synoptic gospels looked at this, feeding It's a messianic sign, fulfilling the Old Testament promises that in the days to come, God would feed his people with plenty. In other words, he promised the exiles Who are in Babylon a new Exodus? Deuteronomy Isaiah chapter forty nine verse nine echoes the words of the Lord. They shall be fed along the ways, and the heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger, nor shall they thirst. Now, here in John's account, there are some close parallels with the Eucharist. Parallels with descriptions of the Last Supper. Now we think John's account of the multiplication shows that Maybe it was adapted to the scene of the institution of the Eucharist. And these adaptations are different from those in the synoptic accounts. So what you'll find unique in John's gospel here is in chapter 6, verse 11, Jesus himself distributes the loaves over which he has given thanks, just as he did at the Last Supper. In the other accounts, he tells he gives the food to the disciples to go out and distribute. Here in John, Jesus himself does so those. that's exactly what Jesus did in the last supper. He took the bread and gave it to his disciples. That's in chapter 6, 11 there. 6, 11. Jesus then took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And then, chapter 6, Verse 12. When they had enough, this is what he says here, so uh, as soon as they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments in the five barley loaves. Now, you go to the, uh, the account of the Eucharist in the Didache. Everybody knows what Didache is? It's the teaching of the apostles, an early Christian document. In fact, it's there that you find uh, the Lord's Prayer, as we have it. Okay. After chapter 9, Didache records the Eucharistic prayer over the cup and the bread. And then chapter tw- 10 begins, After you had enough. Okay, and this is exactly what it says. And when they had eaten their fill, and then here in chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus tells his disciples, gather up the fragments that are left over, so nothing will perish. In the Didache, chapter 9, verse 4, it says, concerning the fragmented bread, we give thanks to you, our Father. As this fragmented bread was scattered on the mountains, but was gathered up and became one, so let the church be gathered up from the four corners of the earth into your kingdom. So it's, after you're finished, you have the gathering up of the fragments. Okay, that's in the description of Eucharistic Meal and dedicate This is what John has here. Okay. Only John emphasizes that the multiplication to place on a mountain. Okay. Chapter three. Chapter six, verse three. Jesus went up on the mountain. There sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. John mentions the theme of Jesus as king in verse 15 receiving them, receiving them that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself so you have all those unique references that John has Okay, he has a uh, First one is the Passover setting for this particular miracle. Then he has the uh, identification of Philip and Andrew, which is the other gospel sinner had. Then details like a lad had five barley loaves. That's in the Old Testament, Second Kings. These Eucharistic features. Okay, Jesus uh, distributes the food, and then the leftovers are gathered up, similar to what we find in the Didache. A the special mention of the, uh, the, the uh, miracle taking place on a mountain, and also the theme of Jesus as king. Now, the Eucharistic coloring of John's account of the multiplication seems beyond doubt. Through all the traditions of Eucharistic coloring means that the insight into the relationship of the multiplication and the action at the Last Supper must have happened early in the preaching tradition. In fact, Jesus himself may have connected the feeding of the crowd with loaves and the institution of the Eucharist, both of them which took place in a Passover context by a deliberate sameness in the pattern of his actions. So this is not maybe a, a connection or tie-in that John is making. This may be something that Jesus himself did when he worked this miracle. And at the conclusion of this scene, verses 14 and 15. Okay. In the synoptics, Jesus compels his disciples to go away by boat to the other side of the sea. And he dismisses the crowd and goes up on the mountain to pray. No reason is given for this abrupt sending away of the disciples and the dismissal of the crowd. In the synoptics, it's just like, okay, I fed you, you know, take off, tells the disciples get involved and go to the other side, and he goes up to the mountain to pray. John's account is the only one really that provides a reason for this puzzling behavior. And mainly he says here, because of the danger of political manifestation on the part of the crowd. He says here, uh, when the people saw this, they said, this is indeed a prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So. Again, why does he send the people away and his disciples away? Because he's trying to defuse the possibility that these people would try to make him king. I know in Mark 6... He reports after the story of the multiplications, the story of the death of John the Baptist at the command of Herod. And Josephus says that Herod feared the great influence that John the Baptist had over the people. And that influence might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion. So if Jesus continued to attract great crowds in Galilee, he could easily become the next target of Herod's wrath. That's the setting that Mark gives Uh, to his first account of all his locations. And such a setting warns us that John is quite plausible in attributing a political reaction to the crowds here in verse 14. A deep distrust and fear of that reaction to Jesus in verse 15. So the reason that after this tremendous uh, miracle of feeding these great amount of people, uh, Jesus worried that, you know, They're going to take this to another step. want to make him king like this is what they're expecting of their Messiah. And he knows that that would incur the wrath of uh, Herod. So that's why he sends them away and he dismisses the crowd. And only John is the one who mentions why did Jesus do it? Because he was afraid that they might make him king. Okay, the next section has to do with uh, the discourse on the bread of life, chapter six, verses 25 to 34. Uh, There's a couple of things in between there, uh, 16 to uh, 24, basically. is a story of the walking across in the Red Sea. And the interesting thing there is that uh, When they had rowed out about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. They were frightened, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat, meaning the boat was at land to which they were going. It is I. In Greek, those words are ego, ami, which is? I am. I am, which is the... the, uh, what the Lord had told Moses to say to the people when they ask you, who sent you to them? Say, ego, amy, I am. So in Hebrew it's Yahweh. I am, who am? Okay. So what is Jesus doing here? He's revealing his divinity in a sense. I am. So this is what we call a theophany. An appearance of God to his people. What is the usual reaction When God appears to people. Fear. Fear, right. And what does it say they were? They were afraid. He says, don't be afraid. Ego, eimi. It's I. I am is here. Okay. Now we move on to 25 to 34. 25 says... When well, they found him on the other side of the sea. Uh, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which, uh, which endures to return to life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him has God the Father set his seal. Now yeah. it's kind of a strange comment that Jesus makes. How can he tell the crowd that they're not looking for Him because they have seen signs? <clears throat> when back in 14 and 15, we're told that people wanted to come and carry Jesus off, precisely because they had seen the signs yet. Oh well, that's the reason they wanted to do that. Why Jesus says, "You haven't followed me because you've seen signs." It's on the theological level that it makes sense
0: enthusiasm expressed back in verses 14 and
1: 15 was based on the physical scene of the marvelous aspect of the sign hmm. so they were seeing the physical sign but there was no real sight or insight for what the sign taught about Jesus can concept of him was as a Davidic king was political. And so they, they ran after him. <laughs> it's this deeper insight into the sign of which verse 26 speaks, contrasting it with the eating of the miraculous loaves. It's going to require this long discourse by Jesus now to explain that the multiplication was a sign of his power to give life. Through the bread of his teaching and of his flesh. This is something they don't get. Multiplication was the sign of his power to give life through the bread of his teaching and of his flesh. The power that he has because he has come down from heaven. Now, that's uh, the same misunderstanding of bread, okay, is, is clear in Matthew sixteen twenty two. Sixteen twenty two. Right, uh, 16, 16 12, rather 22, 16, 12, and they understood he didn't tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Where he says, uh, beware of the leaven of the scribes, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They understood. He didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So what he's basically saying is that the use of bread was not just physical bread. It was to beware of the teaching of uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, which they were using to feed the people with their teaching. Verse 27 there, Jesus continues his point in terms of dualism that we find in John's gospel. Perishable food on the one hand, on the other hand, food that lasts for eternal life. Okay, where did you have that contrast before? Something perishable, something that would uh, give a last for eternal life. Last thing we did last week was. Married woman, right? Between the water that would quench your thirst temporarily and the water that would quench your thirst for eternal life, would satisfy her thirst eternally. In Isaiah chapter 55, the prophet invites everyone who is thirsty to come to the waters, and everyone who has no money to buy and eat. And this food and drink is not anything that money can buy. It is the word of God to which they must listen. So here in John 6, 27, you should not be working for perishable food. It's like Luke says, don't seek what you eat or what you to drink. Instead, seek his kingdom. So Jesus identifies the food that lasts for eternal life as the gift of the Son of Man. Son of Man is an eschatological title. It reflects John's realized eschatology. Realized eschatology means it's happened here and now, right? So the food that lasts for eternal life is part of a present gift that Jesus can give. Can give it now. Jesus <clears throat> eternal life itself is a present gift. So these heavenly realities are realized right here and now in the ministry of Jesus. Verse 28 and 29. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our father is the manna and the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Verses 28 and 9 give the traditional contrast between faith and works. So the crowd has been led by Jesus to go beyond the superficial material level of food. Their response in verse 28 is in terms of works they, they can do. In the next verse, 29, Jesus has said, puts emphasis on faith. He says, obtaining eternal life it's not a question of works, because the faith didn't matter. It's not something that you can acquire in yourself or earn by yourself. It's not a question of faith without that works. Rather, having faith is a work. It's the all-important work of God. So this believing is not so much a work done by man as it is submission to God's work in Jesus. Later on, what's God's work in Jesus? It's his death and resurrection. That's why believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus is so important. Thirty, the mention of faith makes the crowd unfriendly. And they begin to question Jesus' claims. They demand a sign, similar to that which we heard from the temple authorities back in 218. Remember, he threw them out and they what do they want? Give us a sign. So here they say uh, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And verse 31 indicates the sign the crowd wants is a supply of bread. What's important is the crowd's introduction of the theme of manna as a pattern for the sign that Jesus would work for them. In other words, this is a sign that Moses gave to them in the past. Okay, give us a sign, you know, like that now. So the challenge of Jesus to produce manna or its equivalent is a sign is understandable if they thought of him as the prophet like Moses. Now we know from later Jewish documents, uh, people expected that in the final days, God would again provide manna. It was an expectation connected with the hopes of a second exodus. besides the general eschatological expectation of the manna, the manna was particularly associated with the Passover time. And so the reference to manna in verse 31 fits well with John's setting, the multiplication scene. Remember we said earlier, he set the multiplication lows in the context of Passover. Now, when he's discussing what he had done, the people bring up manna, okay. we'll pass over Passover the theme. Verse 32 and 34, Jesus then says, truly, truly, I said to you, was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven? I finally gave you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. John now tells the crowd that their eschatological expectations have been fulfilled. They brought up the manna given by Moses. But this is only a foreshadowing of the real bread from heaven, which is Jesus' own teaching. So you have here a contrast between manna as physical nourishment. The power of God to grant spiritual nourishment back in Deuteronomy Moses tells the people God fed you with manna which you did not understand or did your ancestors understand that he might make you realize that man does not live by bread alone but that man lives by everything or every word that proceeds from the mouth of God so again what is the manna that God feeds his people with this bread Everything, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you're talking about teaching. Okay, and you have a parallel here with the Samaritan uh, woman.
0: Okay.
1: At the very end, what does she say? Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. People here in chapter 6, the crowd says, Sir, give us this bread all the time. Give us this bread always. Okay? So the two stories almost run in tandem and parallel. Okay, now we move on to the next section, verses 35 to 50. What does jesus mean when he speaks of bread manna was interpreted in some jewish circles as signifying divine words or instruction (coughs) so there is some groundwork for understanding the bread from heaven or the bread of life of which jesus spoke as divine revelation given to human beings, buying in Jesus. So they, they did understand that uh, bread sometimes signified God's words or instruction, just as you heard from Deuteronomy, They're not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So when Jesus talks about bread from heaven, bread of life, okay, He talks about divine revelation given to human beings. Okay, That's something that they had already heard of. But in verses 51 to 58, the bread of life is identified with the flesh of Jesus. There it seems that Jesus is speaking of Eucharistic bread. You have two different senses of bread here. One, in terms of divine teaching or revelation. And then also, um, the bread of the Eucharist. Now, there's really no agreement among the Church Fathers about this. Some of the early Church Fathers, like Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and Eusebius, understood the whole discourse (verses 35 through 58) spiritually. them the flesh and blood in verse 53 later on meant no more than did the bread from heaven it was a reference to Christ but not in a Eucharistic way Saint Augustine thought flesh referred to Christ's uh, sacrifice on the cross for the salvation of humankind you see any Eucharistic thing there at all John Chrysostom Berger of Nyssa, Cyril of Jerusalem, Alexandria, they lean toward the Eucharistic theory. Jesus speaks about bread of life, he meant the Eucharist. And we know most of the Protestant reformers didn't accept any Eucharistic interpretation in this passage. Neither did Cajetin as a leading church figure. The Council of Trent took no position on this matter as to what Jesus meant by the letter, but Now, there are a whole slew of modern day theories about this. One theory is that the whole discourse from 35 all the way through 58 refers to the revelation given by Jesus or his teaching. We look around the whole discourse, 35 through 58, referring to the revelation that Jesus came to bring, his teaching. And that's often referred to as the sapiential interpretation. I say P-I-E-N-T-I-A-L, sapiential interpretation. The whole thing refers to Jesus' revelation and his teaching. There's one here. The second one says only the first part of the discourse, verses 35 to 50, has this sapiential theme. The bread of life means the teaching of Jesus as the revelation he came to bring. The only first part of it is sapiential. The second part, verses 51 to 58, refers to the Eucharist, Eucharistic flesh of Jesus. big proponent of that was... Uh, Rudolf Bultmann, B U L T M A N N, German Protestant scholar. So he splits the discourse in two. The first part is sapiential, second part refers to the Eucharist. Then you have others who claim that the whole discourse, 35 to 58, refers to the Eucharistic bread. The first group says the whole thing refers to the teaching of Jesus, second group says it's half and half, teaching of Jesus. The Eucharist, third group says the whole thing is Eucharistic. Big proponent of that is another Protestant theologian, Oscar Kulmont, C-U-L-L, M-A-N-N. Not to be undone, you have a fourth theory. This passage, in thirty-five-fifty-eight, refers to both Revelation and the Eucharistic flesh of Jesus. One of that is the French scholar Xavier Leon Dufour, L E O N D U F O U R. And there's a fifth one, <coughs> opposed by Raymond Brown, French scholar Fouillet, F E U I L L E T. They see two themes in the first part of the discourse. In other words, First part, thirty-five to fifty, refers to the teaching of Jesus, the revelation of God He came to bring, and the Eucharistic theme. They say the second part is exclusively refers to the Eucharist. So now you've got all discourse is sapiential, refers to the teaching of Jesus. Revelation from God he came to bring. Sapiential. Second is, split it in two. First part is Sapiential. Second part is Eucharistic. Well, that's Bulman. Third one says the whole thing is Eucharistic. It's a contrast to the first one. Oscar Kuhlmann says that. Fourth one says, okay, the, uh, the bread refers to both revelation and the Eucharistic flesh. So the whole thing is both teaching and Eucharist. Then you have Brown coming along and saying, Well, the first part is revelation or sapiential and Eucharistic. Second part is solely Eucharistic. Now why why get this distinction? Well when you look at this whole chapter, you start to realize, when we study it closely, that there are distinctions here as to the meaning of bread of life. Now we're talking about the first section, 35 to 50, as sapiential in theme, the reasons why is primarily in the discourse proper, is that the final reaction to Jesus's presentation of himself as bread in this first section, thirty-five to fifty, is that a belief? So you have in verses 35, 36, 40, and forty-seven. You have what? And the bread of life. he who comes to me shall not come. Comes to me is another word for coming in. Our loves. In what? Mm-hmm. Follow or coming in faith, right? He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. of belief again. But I said to you, you have not seen me and yet you do not believe. The Father gives and all that the Father gives me will come to me. And he who comes to me I will not cast out. Where I have come down from heaven not to do my own will to the will of the same me. Then you also have in verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees this and believes in him should have eternal life. I'll raise him up. And in verse 47, truly, truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Okay, so you have there, uh, Jesus presents himself as bread in terms of eliciting belief on the part of people. Do you believe in flesh, or do you believe in teaching? Do you believe in instruction or teaching? Only once in that section, in verse 50, is it said that anyone must eat the bread of life. That's at the very end of the section. This is the bread come down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. It's the only reference to eating. It's in verses 51 to 58 that eating appears over and over again. Now, in that section, the first section, verse 45, the citation that Jesus uses illustrate what is happening to the people who hear him and come to him is, that shall all be taught by God. It's a clear reference to the sapiential symbolism of bread. So the nearest parallel for the bread of life is the theme of living water in chapter four. And water for the woman is also a symbol for what? And? Revelation. Okay. So, uh, the water didn't give you eternal life. The water brought you the revelation that would give you eternal life. So there was also a symbol for a revelation. So that's why in this first section, you have this sapiential idea that bread of life refers to basically the teachings that Jesus came to bring. The revelation that God sent him to give to the human race. And what's the reaction to this revelation is supposed to be? Come to him. Believe in him. So in the second section, you have to talk about eating the bread of life. So most of Jesus' sayings in John have some Old Testament background that makes them at least somewhat intelligible to the audience portrayed in this scene. This is true in chapter six for the divine word and wisdom are often presented in the symbolism of food or bread in the Old Testament. <laughs> Symbolic background can be seen in the reference to manna in verse 31, which introduces the topic of bread of life. Amos the prophet said, in light of the hunger of the crowds and their search for Jesus, behold, the days are coming when I shall send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but for hearing the word of the Lord. They shall run back and forth seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And the wisdom literature of the Old Testament offers the greatest number of parallels. The opening lines of the bread of life discourse Echo of the Book of Sirach. Jesus, like wisdom, wishes the invitation: "Come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine I have mixed." Sirach also talks about what wisdom will do for the one who fears God and practices the law. She will nourish him with the bread of understanding and give him the water of learning to drink. There is even more Old Testament background in the description of the Messianic banquet. In Israel I thought the joys of the Messianic days were often pictured under the imagery of an intimate banquet with Yahweh or with his Messiah. Isaiah warns those who forsake the Lord in his holy mountain, they will be hungry and thirsty, while Yahweh's servant shall eat and drink. In synoptic Gospels, this banquet is pictured as taking place in the afterlife, or at the second coming. But here in John, Jesus announces this banquet is at hand. Jesus is the bread of life for those servants of Yahweh who believe in the one that Yahweh has sent. In this realized eschatological context, Jesus speaks of himself as the son of man. messianic days is associated with God's word come down from heaven to give food to human beings. well we'll start to move into the university but you see uh, the reaction to Jesus as bread of life in the first part there is to come in faith to him to believe in him come to him it doesn't say take his flesh and eat it that's supposed to be the response no it's to be uh, to come in faith to uh, to what you hear and, and instruct it All right now Brown says, okay, there is a
0: sacramental theme as well here. Maybe not as pronounced, but it is there with a the sapiential theme. If
1: bread of life in this part of the discourse refers primarily to revelation in and by Jesus, he also says there are indications of a secondary Eucharistic undertone. To begin with, John relates this discourse, this discourse, the multiplication of the laws, which has itself undergone Eucharistic adaptation. Moreover, the transition between the two scenes highlights the Eucharistic impact of the multiplication. In the discourse itself, Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life. Like in chapter four, with the Samaritan woman, he spoke of giving the living water, but he didn't identify himself with the water. Yet here he is the bread of life. That kind of identification fits the Eucharistic motif very well, talking of himself as the bread of life has a certain sacramental motif there as well. And also, he points out in verse 35, which is mostly sapiential there. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But so here you have a juxtaposition of hunger and thirst. And it seems kind of strange in the discourse on bread, which never mentions water. Well, it would it make sense though, if here you also have a reference to the Eucharist, which involves both flesh and blood, which is both to be eaten and drunk. So the reference there, oh, Commander Heaven, let me see. Uh, Please me shall never thirst. An introducing of thirst and introducing a thirst, providing something for thirst, uh, might indicate a Eucharistic uh, theme as well. Also, the mention of manna, which introduces the discourse, would have had Eucharistic associations for the early Christians. Paul's well, letters to the Corinthians, first letter, he introduces his warning about the Eucharistic cup and bread, for recalling the example of all those ancestors who ate the supernatural food, which was manna in the, des- in the desert, and who drank of the supernatural drink from the rock. So there's a secondary Eucharistic reference in verse 35 to 50, which was to kind of become more prominent in verses 51 to 58. So Brown is probably onto something there. It definitely is semiential, primarily. But you do have uh, inclusions or references to things that would bring up a Eucharistic uh, sense as well. Introducing an introduction of manna, which is the Passover meal. It's not just teaching. And also reference, he who comes to me shall not hunger; he who believes in me shall not thirst. Okay. And at the very end, in verse 51, this is the bread of heaven which comes down that a man may eat of it and not die. So primarily, sacramental. Yes, you can see round uh, onto something there. He says there is a secondary uh, sacramental uh, theme there. Verse 35, In the questions that preceded the discourse, Jesus spoke of God's bread come down from heaven to give life to the world. Back like in chapter 3, 13, Nicodemus, we're told that the Son of Man is the only one who has come down from the Father. So we have to conclude here that Jesus is talking himself as the bread. God, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. The crowd, though, doesn't understand, but Jesus has to specifically identify himself as the bread that gives life. This means that he is the revealer of the truth, the divine teacher who has come to nourish human beings. He comes to me, he comes to me, that's it. coming in faith. So he's the revealer of truth, the divine teacher who has come to nourish human beings. In claiming to personify divine revelation, Jesus goes beyond what the Old Testament says in the wisdom literature. When Jesus says that those who believe in him shall never be hungry or thirsty, he's expressing the same idea that he's going to say in the Lazarus story. I am the life. He who believes in me shall never die at all. So under all these metaphors of bread, water, and life, Jesus symbolically referring to the same reality which once possessed, Makes a person see natural hunger, thirst, and death as insignificant. <clears throat> in verses 36 to 40, spell out the necessity of believing in Jesus and also the will of the Father that people should have life through him. the eschatology here is interesting. In verse 37, Jesus speaks of not hugging out anyone who comes to him. It's all the context of final judgment. All the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him sent me. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, I will raise them up on the last day. So again, what kind of eschatology? Future or final eschatology. It's not real eschatology. Now, one verse earlier, in verse 40, you have both aspects. Verse 40 says, This is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. i you right. And the brother, he who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, that is present, right? Will never thirst. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But then in the end he says, everyone who sees the son of man and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the final eschatology. So what Jesus comes to is talking about both a realized eschatology something that will be also part of the final eschatology. Just like baptism gives you the beginning of the spiritual life, that life is fulfilled at the final time, okay, when you die. Okay, verse 41 to 43. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the which which came down from heaven. He said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? He answered among themselves, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. I'll raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, interesting. Murmuring, what does that remind you of? It's in the context of, the miracle is in the context of what? John is the unique one that sets this miracle around the time of Passover. All right. What took place during the first Exodus? Murmur, you know, we're going to die in this desert. We'd rather be safe, okay? You know, the same thing here. Murmuring, okay? Again, reminder of the Passover theme. Okay, in terms of the atmosphere of the Israelites in the desert, in the manna. The familiar question of Jesus' origins now betrays the usual understanding that greets Jesus as a revealer. He's the bread from heaven. He's the Son of Man who is to come on the clouds. How can he have grown up in a family of Nazareth? Okay, and I fail to understand that they may know his physical origins coming from Nazareth, but his spiritual origin is from, Father, has come down from heaven. In 44 to 50, Jesus never answers that question about his origins on a human level. His words in verses 40 to, 44 to 46 are an answer on a theological plane. He is sent by God, he says, verse 44. He is from God, verse 46. And that is how he can claim to have come down from heaven. Because he was sent by God, he's from God. If the Jews will only stop their murmuring, which is indicative of their refusal to believe, okay, the murmuring in the Old Testament is indicative of their lack of faith and trust in God. they only open themselves to God's action, Father will draw them to Jesus. This is the age spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when they are being taught by God, if only they listen. So the teaching is the teaching is eternal that is embedded in Jesus, embodied in Jesus, rather, who walks among them. It's internal that God acts in their hearts. So the teaching is external in the fact that. It's embodied in Jesus, he's the teacher, and it also is internal in the sense that this teaching acts on their hearts. And it fulfills the words of the prophet Jeremiah, I will put my law within them, and on their hearts will I write it. So this internal moving of the heart by the Father will enable them to believe in the Son, thus possess eternal life. Okay, interesting. Verse thirty-five and verse forty-eight. You have an inclusion there. Thirty-five says, "I am the bread of life." Forty-eight says, "I am, I am the bread of life." The crowd had held up to Jesus the example of their ancestor Moses, <clears throat> ancestors rather, who ate manna in the desert. And then Jesus points out that this didn't save their forebears from death. And in verse 50, he picks up once more the scripture citation, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus says that the bread that truly comes down from heaven <clears throat> is a bread that does not allow a person to die. Okay, now the second section, verses 51 to 59. The meaning of the living bread in verse 51 to 58. Here, the Eucharistic theme, which is only secondary in the earlier section 35 to 50, comes to the fore and becomes the exclusive theme. We're no longer told that eternal life is the result of believing in Jesus, it comes from feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. And then, verse 54, shift an emphasis. From believing in Jesus now to feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. The Father's role in bringing people to Jesus or giving them to him is no longer in the limelight. That was in the first part. Father would draw people to Jesus by his teaching. That's not here. Jesus himself now dominates as the agent and source of salvation. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Jesus is at the forefront here. So, you have a different vocabulary here in 51 to 58. It's not coming to or believing. You have eat, feed, drink, flesh, blood. That's the vocabulary you have in the second section here. So, the first indication the Eucharist is in mind is the stress on eating or feeding on Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. And that can't be simply a metaphor for accepting his revelation. Jesus' words in chapter 653 simply reproduce the words we hear in the synoptic account of the institution of the Eucharist. Take and eat, this is my body. Drink, this is my blood. It'll be an interesting thing here when we talk about what happened to the Last Supper in John. So you have here, these words here. Which I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son and drink his blood, you have no life in you. eats my flesh, makes my hands eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. My food is no food, and my blood is to drink indeed. Eat my flesh, he drinks my blood abide in me, and I am. Okay, similar to the words of institution we find in Synoptic Gospels. The second indication that the Eucharist uh, is predominant here is the formula found in 51. Bread I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. Now considering the fact that John doesn't report the Lord's words over the bread and the cup at the Last Supper, the Joanine form of the words of the institution may be preserved here in chapter six, verse fifty-one. Okay, I'm the living bread come down from heaven, when he says this bread will live forever. The bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, it resembles somewhat Luke's form of institution. This is my body, which is given to you. The important difference is that John speaks of flesh, the flesh of the Son of Man. Sinophic accounts talk about it. it is my body. But there is no Hebrew or Aramaic word for body. So John, in this respect, may be the closest of all the Gospels to the original language of Jesus. This is my flesh. Okay. It doesn't have a Eucharistic account, but the words here, when he talks about eating the flesh, of the Son of Man, that's the Hebrew word. That's the word that Jesus would have used. Now, these words are really out of place anywhere during the ministry of Jesus. These words would have made only only it made sense where? these words that made sense, only at what occasion, take and eat, this is my body, where did that happen? The Last Supper. The Last Supper, yeah. So these words here come out of the blue, talking about the teaching, and this is in Chapter 6, so these words really are, are out of place except at the Last Supper. So. What we think is that verses 35 and 50, 51 and 58, are likely two different forms of the discourse on the bread of life. Both of them Joani, in the sense that they're made up of saints passed down in the Joani preaching tradition. The form of the discourse in 35 to 50, although it has added some extraneous material, represents a far more primitive sapiential form of discourse. So 35 to 50 would be the first bread of life discourse. Remember we say uh, you have uh, two multiplication stories, two creation stories. Here you have two stories of the bread of life. The first one may be the more primitive, earlier one. The second one, which has Eucharistic undertones, stems from a Christian rethinking of the topic resembles a rethinking of the discourse in which the Eucharist has become primary. So the Christians understand that Jesus spoke of himself as the bread from heaven, both in terms of his teaching, then also given what happened to the Last supper in terms of the Eucharist. And At some point, John joined those two traditions of bread of life, in one place here in chapter 6, <coughs> one with sapiential undertones or theme, second one with the Eucharist. Now, Brown has come up with an hypothesis, again, he's probably on target for most of his things. He says here in 51-58, second part, it's made of a material from John's institution of the Eucharist which was originally located at the Last Supper scene. But for some reason, John took that material out and recast it into a duplicate of the Bread of Life discourse. In other words, what John did is, you know, in the story of Jesus at the Last Supper, he removes the institution of the Eucharist and he recasts it into a bread of life Eucharistic theme, which he introduces in verse 6. What reasons does Brown give for saying this? Well, he says, you don't have any account in the institution the Last Supper scene in John. All the Gospels have it. Uh, It's so striking that John doesn't have it. But he says, even though he did, he's left some marks that it was there to begin with. It says in chapter 14, verse 18, it goes, Truly, truly, I say to you, servant is not greater than his master nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to to all of you. I know whom I have chosen is that scripture may be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I tell you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may truly believe that I am he. What is he talking about there? Judas. Yeah, talking about the last supper meal who takes the bread, raises his heel against me. What is he talking about? Betrayal of Judas, Judas at the meal. But he doesn't give you the institution of the Eucharist. So Brown, I think, is probably right in saying that what John or, you know, says. instead of repeating this, I'm going to recast this to make people realize Jesus is bread in terms of his teaching and also feeding. Now, if you realize, that's what our Mass is, right? First part is the liturgy of the Word. Second part is the liturgy of the Eucharist. So Jesus is the bread we feed on in terms of his teaching, nourishes us, and also, it's Eucharistic body of blood. So, what John has done is what we as Christians have done in terms of our liturgy of worship. You know, uh, uh, recast or rethought, you know, as uh, I always say, uh, our job as priests and, uh, is, is to feed our people. We feed our people with the Word of God, we feed our people with the Eucharist. Those are two things, both. We feed them both glory Word of God. And that's what. Our is our Eucharist is. It's celebration of the Word of God and also the Last Supper meal that Jesus gave. So, okay, he's missing the Last Supper scene, but there are traces of it here. He says, uh, you know, uh, the reference with uh, that eating, the close similarity of the formula, so and eat, and also, uh, you know, the reference to... Uh, to Judas there. So, actually, verses 51 to 58 would only have been understandable at the Last Supper. It's out of the blue that it occurs here. He's talking about teaching. Okay, that's okay. But listen, what is he talking about? You know, which is Eucharistic in the middle of, you know, his ministry not in the middle of the beginning of his ministry. It only makes sense if this is something that occurred and was taught by Jesus. At the Last Supper. So the material taken from the Last Supper has been recast on a pattern of the Bread of Life Discourse, brought back into chapter six. Blended themes of chapter six with material from the Last Supper. So the final redactor has created a second bread of life discourse. His purpose seems to have been to spill out the Eucharistic undertones already implicit in the chapter. And it's interesting. He is uh, given verses fifty-one to fifty eight, the same beginning. What does he begin fifty one to fifty-eight? Second discourse here. It says I am the living bread which come down from heaven. Anyone anyway, he eats this bread, he will live forever. But I will give is, the life of the world is my flesh. 51. Okay, 35 to 50. How does begin? This: I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So he's talking about I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. And then also, same type of interruption. What happens in the first bread of life? What did the Jews do? When Jesus starts talking about bread. What do they start doing? Murmuring, complaining. <laughs> 55, uh, the yeah, the uh, disciples of quarrel into that, right? It's a so hard saying. Uh, let me see. Yeah, the uh, the two has the same promise of eternal life. Uh, they protest the same thing to the disciples. Where the original discourse stressed the necessity of belief in Jesus, the new discourse stresses the necessity of eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus. In okay, verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Again. Just like in the first part, disciples saying, you know, complaining, just like in the desert. So, uh, the thought is that the Last Supper was at one time in John's Gospel. But maybe the final redactor, whoever it is, took out that Eucharistic part of the Last Supper. Brings it back to Chapter 6 to parallel the bread of life, the teaching of Jesus, bread of life, the flesh and blood of Jesus. Okay. and uh, But then again, he's left traces in that story where he speaks about dipping uh, bread into the cup with into the dish with me and then turning his heel against me. That's all in the Last Supper account. While they're having dinner, this is what happens. Jesus uh, gives the bread to Judas or Judas dips into the, uh, the dish with Jesus. Oh, God. Well, Father, that's the full basis. The primary basis for our belief in the true presence is this, uh, this course here. Isn't it? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it is. That's why I say John is a theological gospel. He just doesn't tell you this is what Jesus did at the last supper. He tells you why this is important to live, and to believe. And as he says, go out and baptize all people, into his gospel. What does John do? In Nicodemus' story, why is it important to be baptized? Because because you're born in a physical, earthly way, you need to be reborn in a spiritual sense. Your earthly father brings you into this world. How do you get born into the world to come? Through your heavenly father, okay? So this mm-hmm. is just to help us understand the, what it says right here, the saying is hard, who can accept it? Okay, but again, we're gonna talk about that. What is he referring to there? Okay, now. uh, Now, the reactions to this discourse, verses 60 to 71 here. Does this section refer to the whole discourse, including the Eucharistic section? Or does it refer only to what we call the original discourse, the sapiential part? Now, Brown again says 60 to 71 refers not to 51-58, which is the Eucharistic theme, but rather to the first one, 35 to 50. He suggests that verse 60 immediately followed verse 50. You go back to 50, it says what? This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. And he says you should read, Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying, but listen to it. Jesus, knowing in himself his disciples, murmured at it, said to them, Do you take offense of this? But what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he came, where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life? The flesh is of no avail. Avail. words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you that do not believe. Jesus knew from the first who were those that did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. This is why he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So, okay. The disciples are ignorant about this and murmur just as the crowd murmured about the same claim back in verse 41. The disciples cannot bear to listen. Notice all the references there in 60 to 71. They concern hearing or believing Jesus' doctrine. There's no reference to refusing to eat his flesh or drink his blood. Since they claim they cannot listen to his claim, They complain that they can't listen to his claim to have come down from heaven. Verse 62, Jesus asks, what will they think if they see him going back rising to where he was before? He uses the term son of man to identify himself with a figure both Daniel and Enoch characterized as heavenly. So this essential, ascension rather, will be accomplished through death and resurrection. In Synoptic Gospels, use the title, Son of Man and Jesus' Predictions of the Passion, Death, and Resurrection. Son of Man must be handed over, et cetera, and then die and then rise. So the Synoptics talk about, you know, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Back in the story of Nicodemus, when he can't understand how a man can be begotten from above of water and the spirit, Jesus explains by calling upon the ascension into heaven of the Son of Man, for it is the ascended son of man who gives the spirit. And here in 63, it says here, uh, It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to your spirit and life. Spirit is mentioned here immediately after the reference to the ascension of the son of man. The contrast between spirit and flesh is a contrast found in the Nicodemus story. Jesus isn't speaking of Eucharistic flesh, but of flesh as he spoke of it in chapter 3, namely, the natural principle of human beings that cannot give eternal life. The Spirit is the divine principle from above, which alone can give life. So, man's natural life cannot give him life of the Spirit. It's only the life from above given to him by the Spirit of God that can help him live on that level. So Jesus once more affirms that human beings can't gain life on their own. If Jesus is the divine revelation come down from heaven, like bread to nourish humans, his purpose is to communicate to them the principle of eternal life. The one who accepts the words of Jesus will receive the life-giving spirit. Just as in chapter 4, with the Samaritan woman, with the living water offered by Jesus was both his revelation and spirit. So here are Jesus' words. And spirit are mentioned side by side by giving life. So here, 66. Another reaction of the disciples. Many drew back and alone went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, "Do you wish to go away?" Some answered the Lord, "To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life." and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered tonight, choose you, the twelve, when he was a devil, spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. Again, that's totally out of place at that point, right? It makes sense, Jesus speaking about this at the last supper. So again, you know, is there a reaction against the teaching that I must eat the flesh of the Son? I know there seems to be Revelation that Jesus has come down from above as the bread from heaven to give life to the world. Now, first time you've ever heard this? Yeah, but still I'm confused because it says in 52, the Jews quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right. So they're referring directly there to eating of the flesh, not the word. Yeah, but I'm talking about the disciples. I see. Okay. See. Their reaction to that. Right. Is their reaction against? No. no is reaction reaction's unclear. Yeah. Yeah. To believe and come to. Okay. So I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. <coughs> so it's the uh, Jesus as the teacher come down from heaven. the one who reveals the word of God. But uh, but again, can you uh, can you see how that second part? 51 to 58, is really, you know, John's Last Supper story. Jesus giving his flesh to eat, okay? Unless you eat the flesh of man, you will not have life in you, okay? And then you go back to the, the place where he has the Last Supper. He just has the washing of the feet. Just an instance there, he talks about dipping bread into the dish. Someone who's raised his heel against him, and that means betrayer. And also at the end of the story it talks about, you know, one of the twelve of one of you is a betrayer. Okay. So the redactor pulled out the Eucharist the Eucharist from its original setting, recast the teaching about Jesus giving himself his flesh and blood to eat and drink sacramentally, and reformulated a parallel story, Bread of Life, as the teaching of Jesus bread of life as the Eucharistic flesh and blood of Jesus. And that, as I say, is what we have in our mass. So could, you know, the parallel there. In the old story years ago, people said, well, if I got in after the gospel or the homily, i made mass. As though the word of God had nothing, no importance. We don't talk about that. people still do yeah, I mean, uh, but this is the, uh, the sense, as I know. God comes to feed us both with his teaching and his sacrament, His in blood. Okay. Questions, anybody on Zoom? I didn't even think I would make it through. No questions? Okay. I'm going to give a break. come back in about 10 minutes. We'll do chapter 9. Story of the man belonged line. That's not as dense as this.